interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Are you ready, Joe? Oh, yeah. I was born ready. Born, Jason born ready. Perfect. <laughs> well, there's that, too, I guess. <laughs> All right. Welcome to my bloody podcast. Uh, have a great show today. I'm Brian Kluger. I'm with Preston Barton. We have a legendary, an intercontinental champion of the pen, of the paper, of the screenplays, novels, and novellas, all the way in East Texas, Joe Lansdale. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are going to talk about so much in the horror genre your upcoming appearance in Dallas, Texas at the Texas Theater. We have so much to cover, but first, like in The Sound of Music, we have to start at the very beginning. In East Texas, Joe, in East Texas, what what got you into writing? What, were you a little kid reading books, comics? How did this, how did this all start? Well, you know, when I was four years old, my, my brother's 17 years older than me. And so he was out of the house. So we always kid with that. We were both only children because we were raised uh, as only children. And I, my, I came along 17 years later. So, uh, you know, I was like still a kid. And when he was married, his uh, wife, my sister-in-law, Mary Louise, uh, she decided that she would impress the family and bring me a stack of comics. And then she had to read them to me. And then I, she would get tired of reading them to me. So I started memorizing them when she would read them. And then after a while, she just said, well, you just need to learn to read. And my mother started teaching me how to read, but I, it's funny. It was like, as soon as I saw those comic books and I saw that their stories, you know, I wanted to write, I wanted to tell stories. I don't know if I, I thought of it as writing. And I certainly didn't think of it as a career, but I wanted to tell stories. And so I wanted to write and draw. And when I was a, a child at about six years old, I was considered kind of like uh, an amazing artist. And by the time I was eight years old, I was still the same artist. By the time I was 12 years old, looking back, I wasn't very good at all. <laughs> I was just doing okay for a six-year-old. and uh, But the stories got better. And I got more interested in telling the stories. And I liked that better. It satisfied me more. But comic books were what made me bite originally. And uh, I loved uh, Batman, for instance, in Justice League and Super all the comics that were starting to thrive, many of them under Julie Schwartz's, uh, you know, over, oversee period there when he was the, the top editor dog. Um, and, and years later, he became a friend of mine. So I always thought that was kind of weird. There I was as a child reading these comics that he edited. And uh, there was another comic called Classics Illustrated, which uh, was famous novels and short stories uh, done up as, you know, comics. And uh, I got interested in those. And that led to me, you know, reading all kinds of writers. Uh, some of them right, right about that time, uh, but mo many of them later, because I remembered those comics and I kept them for a long, long time. I, in fact, I, I don't really know what happened to them. I have, I have a few stray ones about, you know, like cats. I come across them every now and then. Uh, but uh, that that made me want to do it more. And then reading made me want to do it more. And by the time I was nine, I had written my first book, which was mostly plagiarism that I had done for myself. And I did. But I did write an original poem. And uh, I thought, wow, I don't like poetry, but that was fun. Um, I came to like poetry a little better as I got older. But and it and my prose has some poetic aspects. But um, I really thought, you know what, I want to write. And then when I read Edgar Rice Burroughs when I was 11, I no longer wanted to write. I had to write. And um, I started trying to write stories. I did write a story and a play for school. And I, I worked on a couple of novels for years and years. I could just never get past that. Uh, you know, well, I got past the middle part, but people just seemed to kind of malinger. You know, events just kept happening and no ending was in sight. I had no I had no understanding of arc, of story arc at all. But I was 
I was going, you know, I, I wanted to do it. And I started reading everybody and his dog. Even when I was living in Mount Enterprise, we didn't have a library because it was, a, I was born in Gladewater, moved there when I was a kid and we didn't have a library there. Uh, and they had a bookmobile and I think it was just in the summers and I would read books and there was another kid that didn't like to read. And so he would go with me and let me pick books from him. And then I would take his books home and read them. And then I would turn them all in when the bookmobile was coming back, you know, and, uh, I just became fanatic for reading and, uh, and trying to write. And I guess when I went to college, then of course, then I started reading a lot of, uh, you know, more, you know, classic writers of Fitzgerald and Hemingway. I, I'd read Hemingway actually because my mother had saved all of these old, I think they were look magazines and the old man in the sea was actually in the magazine that that's where it first appeared. And I read it there and I remember being disappointed because he didn't get the fish. But when I started going to college, it, it had a different, you know, different uh, ring to it when I read it. And I read The Great Gatsby and uh, Diamond as Big as the Ritz and Steinbeck stories and stuff. And that led me going to the university library or college library, actually. It was a two-year college and finding all of these writers that I had read and reading more so that I had a pretty good education in at least Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Steinbeck, Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, I read more of later, but all of those people combined and, you know, nobody ever said to me, don't read science fiction, don't read genre fiction. Um, so I read it all. I didn't know that one was supposed to be better for me than another, you know, and uh, I, I'm, I'm influenced by both. You know, I'm very much influenced by uh, the the prose and sometimes the character insight and sometimes the, the story insight uh, in those literary works. And then the genre fiction taught me how to just tell a story. And you know, I love them both. And uh, the the coll the collision of those things has a lot to do with my career. So in a way, since I was four years old and I'm going to be 72 in October, I've been a storyteller uh, in between all kinds of rotten jobs. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I have to go back when you said you were an illustrator and you draw. Do you still draw or did your parents or you keep any of your drawings in like frames or anything? Oh, I I still doodle now and then, but I always destroy them afterwards. You know, um, I was looking at some of John Lennon's doodles and I thought, damn, if that's good, I'm a genius. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I, I my, my my mother was a, a, a painter, you know, uh, on her own. That wasn't her way she made a living. She did it because she liked doing it and she sold her paintings. Uh, but, you know, my father couldn't read or write. He was uh, illiterate. And uh, so it was a, a, a totally weird thing there because my mother was always pushing me to read and my dad was always supporting it because he was saying, you know, you don't want to end up like me not knowing how to read and write because he was born in 1909 and his mom died when he was eight. And he used to get a horse whipping to go out and work in the cotton fields, make him go out and work when he's eight years old. One time he fell off a horse and busted because they were still going when horse fell off a horse, busted his eardrum and his father beat him with a horse whip, and made him go back. And many years later, my uncle, which is his younger brother, said when my dad, I guess my dad was, I don't know, 17, maybe, maybe a little old. I think about that age. He said he pulled that horse, his father pulled the horse whip off the wall and was going to beat um, his younger brother, Leonard. And my dad took it away from him, said, nah, you've, you've, you've whipped us for the last time. And he said, and they left and never came back, you know? So um, my dad was a tough guy too. You know, he, he grew up in, uh, my mother was born probably, I think about 1914 or 15. I'm not sure exactly. And uh, she and he uh, became a, a young adults and adults during the Great Depression. And my dad worked for the WPA and, and he used to, from time to time, ride the rails to carnivals and box and wrestle in carnivals. And he was sort of the beginning of professional wrestling, which was being developed. You know, he didn't know that. And most of the people involved did not know that. But that's what was happening. And he was good. He he was my first martial arts instructor, which I still do that. I have a school here in, in Nacogdoches and I still teach private lessons. That That's that's amazing. And I'm glad you the, the yeah. start pro wrestling because I'm a big pro wrestling fan being in Dallas. The sports. Stadium, I used to go there. <laughs> Yeah. I never, never really liked it. My, my dad liked it watching on TV, but I loved, I loved boxing and real wrestling. And I loved, and I'm not saying those guys aren't athletes because they're incredible athletes, 
but I just didn't, I didn't like all of the, you know, the silly pomp and circumstance, you know, it, uh, it the was theatrics, like a, the theatrics. Yeah. The, too much like a stage play done by nine-year-olds. And, and so I didn't really like that. <laughs> That's right. But right. I got interested in judo and jujitsu. And, and and I was fortunate in the right place at the right time when I was able to get into those things a little later. But, um, you know, but I think, I think that my parents both being encouraging and we were, you know, poor. My father used to say if it cost a quarter to ship, we'd have to throw up. And I think he was right. We wouldn't have a lot of money. And uh, so in time, um, uh, you know, I just kept thinking, I don't just want to write. I want, I want this as a career. Cause I began to understand what a career was as you know, I, I got older, but I had no idea how to do it. I never met a writer, a publisher, an agent, another writer. I never read anybody, met anybody that was interested in what I was doing, living out in the wilds of East Texas. You know, I, I didn't know what to do or how to get started. You know, my wife had a lot to do with that. When I met her, that, that turned that in a better direction. I, I think I would have eventually made it because I, I don't know that I wanted to ever do anything else besides that in martial arts, but um, she certainly solidified it and put me in a position where I could do it. I mean, I, I worked, she worked, but she once gave me three months off to do nothing but write. And she said, but when I come home, you better have something written. And she was working in a freezer truck, putting, packing it with lunch meat. And uh, so she gave me three months. And every day I'd write a story every day for 90 days. And back then you could send a story out to 10, 15 markets. In like now, there were magazines and nearly every magazine ran fiction. Now, a lot of this, not knowing what I was doing, I, I found a, I think it was a writer's, writer's Digest magazine that gave me some tip on how to, you know, send things out. And I think first thing I sent out was in longhand before I realized you couldn't do that. And then my wife had a typewriter. She used to say I married her for a typewriter. She had a, a manual Montgomery Ward's typewriter. You know, we had back then we had the paper you put in, you put in the carbons, you've, you've got uh, ribbons and, uh, you know, I, I, and white out. I needed a gallon of white out. I, you know, I couldn't spell. Uh, I'm terrible at, at spelling back then, especially. And, um, I was a messy typist too, but I could type fast, but not necessarily accurate. <laughs> and so I would write a story a day and then, um, and, and finished, I mean, I would clean them up. So I, I, back then I didn't know what I was doing. So I'd spend all day. I'd write the story about half a day by the time. And she would come home for lunch and I would show look, see, see story. And then when she'd leave, I would polish it up as best I knew how and send it out. And over those 90 days, I wrote 90 short stories and I sent them out to all those markets. And of course they kept coming back because they were just God awful. And uh, I, over a period of four years, cause it took that long to go through all of these different, you know, magazines and stuff. I got a thousand rejects. Literally. We used to joke about, you know, that paper in the wall. We really could, you know, we, we had that many reach. I say we, because we were partners, but, um, I couldn't believe that I, I could turn out copy that fast, but I'd already been selling, by the way, I'd been selling nonfiction before I even tried to write that very first thing I ever wrote was with my mother. And we sold it to farm journal as by Orita Lansdale or Orita Wood. I forget which name she used, maybe used her maiden name. And then on top of that, we got paid for it and won a prize as best article. So I thought, damn, I like this. So I, I sold some more articles, some for money and some for copies, you know, and then I went into trying to write fiction, which was considerably more difficult. And, and uh, that, but that, that 90 days that she gave me was a turning point because I got all the crap out of my system. You know, I got all of the stories I had read, all the Alfred Hitchcock uh, magazines and all of the Alfred Hitchcock presents on TV and the Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and uh, uh, Terra, uh, which was uh, uh, an earlier uh, show with Boris Karloff as, as the, you know, MC, but I, I, you know, some of that stuff seeped in and I was just getting it all out, you know, and I'd read everybody in science fiction and, you know, I, I read tremendous amount of science fiction. I read other things, but what I had really wanted to be when I was growing up was a science fiction writer. And I think that it began to waver a little bit after college. Cause I saw that there was such a variety of fiction. And then I, once I read Raymond Chandler, I thought, well, you know what? I think I could write a crime novel. And uh, eventually I, I wrote a few and well as a lot of uh, horror short stories. And I guess a few novels that might be called that. Now, I know that's a long way 
of getting to answering your question. But if you don't want to know, don't ask. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> when you were talking about your parents, by the way, I can see why you're a storyteller. We don't, both Brian and I don't mind you sharing everything about your life story. That that has me interested, uh, interested as you were talking about, you know, your parents growing up, as you were saying it, I could, there was like a cinematic quality to it. I was picturing everything as you were describing it. And so I'm, it has me curious as to how much you've weaved your growing up into your own work, specifically your parents. Tremendously. Tremendously. Uh, it, I'm writing a memoir right now. And, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and, and it's, uh, it's maybe not always the truth, but it's the truth as you remember it. You know, you mm -hmm. think it's the truth. But what's funny is a few times I've asked people about something, they had a totally different take on those events. And I just decided they were wrong, wrote it my way. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it I, i've always and movies were a big influence i love tv movies well they were showing old movies on tv and they and when i was growing up i was born in 51 and tv was really just starting to be a thing it had been around but there really was no programming per se and they started buying a lot of old things like hop along cassidy movies and the guy william boyd who had played hop along cassidy in those was smart enough to buy the television rights which everybody thought was silly and was a fad he sold his house and lived in a trailer and then uh Hop along Casty became and they started making new episodes, you know, for TV, became like the Beatles were later. People were just crazy. It was hop along casty stuff everywhere. And you know what? Famous story about hop along casty that made me love him even more was that William Boy was at a signing and they had the in the South, they had black kids over here in this line, white kids in this line. And he said, if you don't put those two lines together, I'm gone. Hop along casty caused them to put the two lines together. You didn't see that much in the South. That's the kind of power that he had. And I really admired that. You know, I never forgot, got that story. And uh, so, but anyway, I was watching all these old movies, you know, horror movies, Universal. And a little later, started they started putting some of the older Corman style movies, some of them even before Corman. And then later, I was seeing all these things. And some of that stuff was so bad, it was good. And some of it was bad, but I didn't know it was bad because I had nothing to measure it against. We... Back then, if you like fantasy, science fiction, or weird, you grasped at straws. Everything seemed worth seeing that had any element of that. And then you had the great Twilight Zone. And Alfred Hitchcock often had really dark things that I that I liked. And uh, I was always honored years later for Robert Block, who wrote Psycho and wrote a lot of the things that were in uh, the Hitchcock TV series. And he and I became friends, you know, we weren't dear friends, but we became friends. And I got to meet Richard Matheson and, and uh, associate with him. And I re met Rad Ray Bradbury and he actually took me to lunch one time. All of that later in his life when he was in a wheelchair at that time. And I met William F. Nolan, who wrote Logan's Run and a lot of TV and stuff. And he and I became very good friends. And so I was fortunate. And Julie Schwartz, as I was saying, the comic book editor, all of these people, many, many more, I begin to meet them. And so I was, uh, those many years later, by the way, I was in hog heaven, you know, I, I was meeting the people who had inspired me and I was meeting people who wrote some of the movies that I love because Matheson and Beaumont, you know, they wrote a lot of those Vincent Price movies that Roger Corman made and they wrote movies separate of one another. Uh, Robert Block wrote lots of screen screenplays and Psycho, though he did not write the screenplay, was obviously based on his novel. So I had all these wonderful influences and my mother would paint and I would, you know, I was amazed at her ability to do that because uh, I, I had that inspiration to be an artist, but was terrible. I just didn't, I didn't have the, the knack. And so all of that kind of blended together. It wasn't a fruit salad. It was a blend. There's a difference. It's like in martial arts. If he grabs me, I use judo. If he does this, I'll use a wrist. That's not how it's done. Uh, it's a, it's actually a true blending, not a fruit salad. And that's the way the writing was. And uh, in many ways, martial arts informed the way I approached the story and the way I wrote, um, whether I intended to or not. Right, right. Brian, before we get to talking about Bubba Hotep, as a fellow Texan, what about the, the Texas art scene in particular has most spoken to you? Are there particular wells? You, you've talked about, you know, literary works, 
your your family and things like that but anything particular about texas and growing up here and the evolution of things that have been happening when i was growing up there was no art scene there was no Mm -hmm. place to see art except on paperback covers and those were great influences you know Roy Crinkle, Frazetta. I mean, you know, you could go on with a list of those people. They were the big influences for me uh, on uh, science fiction covers in particular, but also crime, uh, uh, like the gold medal novels and uh, Westerns. All of those were the art that influenced me. And um, I had no, you know, there were no art museums. I mean, I, I, it was rare for me to get out of East Texas growing up. You know, I until a certain period in my life, I had never been any farther north than oklahoma and no farther uh east than louisiana and no farther west than arizona and i did that when i was a kid so i don't remember it all that well my father and mother picked fruit and worked in uh uh, vegetable garden not gardens up patches fields where people pick cotton or vegetables and they did that on their way out where my father had what he thought was a job but he didn't like it and so they did it on the way back too. And I remember him going out in the woods and hunting squirrels for our dinner, you know, and, uh, uh that's, uh, that was a different, so there wasn't exactly an art scene, you know, <laughs> there, there were no museums. There were, there was nobody to tell you about art and nobody that cared about art. They thought art was the guy that lived next door. There's just, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like that. Interesting. So paperback covers and, and that was my entry. And the films and the TV and the books. And, uh, and, and, you know, I wasn't one of those kids that didn't get along with other kids or was an outsider. I got, I was popular. I got along with people really well. I, I didn't have that trouble, but I always knew that I had a difference. I had a difference of the way I looked at the world. And uh, I, I lost my religion by the time I was probably 13 and completely understood that by the time I was 17, I became, I was an atheist. Uh, I was uh, more liberal minded than my neighbors uh, and I still am, but there's a lot more liberal people in Texas than others know because unfortunately Texas is not so much a conservative state as it is an, a non-voting state. People just don't vote. You know that. I do. Talking I do. Right. I was talking about, but talking to Preston, especially he's in Texas. So you know, it's just it. I mean, there's a lot more liberal minded people than you think. And it's it's so weird is that I, I moved out to Berkeley um, at one point before I was drafted and nearly went to prison, which is another story. But the um, when I moved out to Berkeley, I was going to go out there and be around all those liberal people. And some of them were at least in voice. But I discovered that they were the same assholes everywhere and that, uh, you know, you had people that would lie to you, that would cheat. You had uh, I, I had so many fights growing up. I feel awful when I write in the, the memoir. I thought, well, this sounds like I'm just going around fighting, but I pretty much was because I had real long hair down to here. And uh, I, I sued T- TJC because they wouldn't let me come in because I had long hair. I won that suit, uh, me and some other guys. It was called Lansdale at all versus TJC. But, you know, I, I, I think that's what I learned because really Texans, at least I can see that son of a bitch coming. I know this culture. And I also love the people that I love. And some of the people I love have totally different views than I do. But if my car broke down out here, they would stop and help me, you know. And I, in Berkeley, it'd be like when I was there, I wouldn't even get this. I wouldn't even get a wave. It'd just be zip. Of course, it, there's more of that change in here, too. That's, that's not as much as it was once before. But nonetheless, I, I know this culture and I know these people. And I'm fascinated by this culture. And I, I earned my my uh, place in this culture uh, through through fighting and through uh, reading and through uh, living, you know. And uh, at some point, I got to where I had enough money I didn't have to live on that lower rung, which is why a lot of fights happen. You're in these areas where there's a lot of frustrated, angry people, and it's like, how you doing? I'm going to kill you, you know. <laughs> so before you know it, you're into it, you know. Right now, I have to know how did you almost end up in prison? Ah, uh, well, I I was opposed to the Vietnam War, and uh, I was going. To, I had a deferment, and I went to some college. I never finished college. I really liked it, but I couldn't afford it. And uh, so I decided at some point that I, I and I got a divorce. I, my first wife, and we married when I was eighteen. By nineteen and a half, I was divorced, and. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I dodged a bullet, you know? <laughs> and so, um, 
but I didn't want to be dodging with Vietnam, not because I, I I didn't, you know, I'm one of those guys that I would not go as a conscientious objector because I said, would you have gone to World War II? Yep. Would you fight if somebody fought you? Oh, yeah. I, if you start it, I'm going to finish it. Not because I necessarily want to, but because I might have to, because you don't know where that's going to go. It could be you lying in a ditch with one shoe missing, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I was drafted and I went and I refused to be inducted. And so they talked to me, they offered me officer training school, which, you know, they'll offer you anything and teach martial arts at, in, at, to, um, uh, you know, at, at, at uh, bases for the people that were in the military. And I said, well, I would still be supporting what I don't believe in. It's not the military I'm against. My brother retired as a captain from the, from the military. I said, I don't believe in this war. And I don't, think that the draft is a good idea and i and when the war was over we had fifty four thousand people killed and vietnam became one of our major trade partners and people go there for vacation and so nothing that they claim was true was true we weren't fighting for that we were just fighting for geography and for possibly oil and what we could get out of that and it was the first time i truly become disillusioned with you know people in in, in power uh, I didn't come become disillusioned with the country. I love it. I thought I was being a patriot. And I, I when I didn't go back to school, I knew I was going to be drafted and I knew I was going to go to prison. But when I, I went in the first time, they said, well, you go home and get your stuff in order and then come back on this date. And what you did, you went to Tyler and he got on a bus and they took you to Dallas to the draft board. And so when I got there the second time, I'm all down because I'm going, I mean, I'm going to prison and uh, I'm not changing. You, you know, you're not going to scare me. I'm not going to do it. Of course, I was scared, but I'm not going to let them know that I'm not running because I'm not running outside of this country. I'm an American. I love this country. Not doing that. I don't want a conscience objector because I don't feel that bill. You know, it's sometimes I think it might be necessary to do that. Most of the time it isn't, but it might be necessary. And so they sent me in to see a psychiatrist that they had there. He gave me a one Y and they sent me home. And I remember being on the bus just dazed. And that was the end of my draft. And I didn't go to prison or go to Vietnam. So. Oh, good. You know, I don't know. Why. I think part of it was that it was, I think it was about 1972 and the war ended was 74. And mm-hmm. I think they were already starting to wind down. They also had somebody that was not, you know, fitting their normal idea of what a draft dodger was because uh, I wasn't dodging. And on top of that, I was willing to go to prison, you know, and I, I, I sincerely thought I was, I didn't think, I never occurred to me that they would say to me, go home, go home and have a good life is what the psychiatrist said to me as I was going to the door. Wow. And I, remember, and I had, there was a guy with a red sash there, a military guy. And he whispered to me, go to Canada, son, this isn't working. And I said, no, I'm not running. And I remember that those two things. So I think you were starting to see a lot of infiltration of ideas that were somewhat different. Probably people who had been there uh, or known people who had been there. I knew that we were going to pull out. So why add more to it? So I don't know, uh, but whatever, I was fortunate. And later when I thought about dropping out to be drafted, you know, trying to make this political statement, I thought, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I I should have gone to college. But I was thinking about all those, you know, poor people, black people and stuff who were fighting those wars. And then one day I realized, hell, I'm one of the poor people. (laughs) What was I thinking? You know? Oh, my goodness. What an incredible story. And in in conjunction with uh, the psychiatrist saying, go on and lead a good life and having these different (laughs) ideas, let's bring that Bring that to Bubba Hotep, because out of all the movies in the world, out of all the film and cinema experiences, the one movie that I most love explaining and talking about to people is Bubba Hotep. Oh, my gourd. So seriously, this I it's the one movie I love. To, it's like, what is this movie about? And I get to explain it to him. It's the movie I love to most talk about. How did this story come into your brain <laughs> you know um my brother's wife mary they they met in memphis and she graduated high school with elvis so she knew him and my brother met him you know this was before he was elvis he was starting to be elvis and uh uh, my brother would cross paths with him from time to time but the first time he met him was in lowe's theater and elvis was an usher with a flashlight and he showed you to your seat his hair was still brown blondish almost you know he died in black later but he said that he was just he said but i tell you what there was just something about that guy 
He said, you got, that guy's got something. It's not, I can't figure out what it is, but this guy's got something and he's an usher, you know? And then the next thing you know, he's, he's a king of rock and roll, you know? And uh, my brother tried to record at Sun Records. He did record something that wasn't, wasn't successful. He never, I think it was, I think you could go in and get recordings done, you know? And the guy, uh, Sam Phillips liked it, uh, but somebody else recorded it and they liked that one better. And my, my brother ended up <coughs> going into the military went in the Marines, the guy of the Marines and went into the army and retired a captain, but he always was interested in music and wanted to be in music. So he met one time he went to a, a school for, I guess you call them radio announcers back then. That was a big thing. Cause you didn't have all the television and, and internet stuff we have now. So he was sitting in a chair talking to this other guy and they were both talking about how desperate they were financially and that they needed to get some job. And this other guy was trying to get an announcing job and it turned out that was Johnny Cash, but he wasn't Johnny Cash yet. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, 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 I'm tying this all in to the Elvis thing. Believe me, trust me. And then later, my um, daughter uh, was recorded. She's a professional singer and songwriter. She was recorded by Johnny's uh, son, John Carter Cash, who is one hell of a great guy. You know, and so we had kind of that full circle. But I had this Elvis aspect and I was a big fan. I grew up. I remember when I was a little kid hearing him on the radio and going, what the hell's that? That's not Hank Snow. What is that? You know? And uh, you just sort of caught moving around, you know, you start to understand what's going on here. Uh, but so I loved Elvis. Well, John Kennedy was president when I was a child and he was assassinated. And at that time, you know, we felt as Americans after World War II that we were perfect. We weren't, but we felt we were, but we were pretty good. You know, we, we were the world's hero for quite a while there. In some ways, you know, even in spite of all the crap, still are right or wrong. I, I think rightly, ultimately. But uh, I, he was killed and it was just such a blow. You know, it was just such a blow because he was about education and science. And at that time, religion and, and uh, education were separate. You didn't mix them together. It was not allowed. You could go to church for your education. You went to, and, I mean, for your uh, religious education and you went to school for your real education for <laughs> concern, but, but after, uh, Elvis and John Kennedy, uh, you know, John Kennedy was killed and Elvis's, uh, um, arrival. Those were big impacts on me. And then later in life, my, my mother had a, a car accident, which put her in a, uh, a, a rest home because she had to be taken care of 24 seven. And so I spent lots of time there, you know, at that time, we all thought she was going to come out of it, but it, it didn't work out that way. But I listened to people talk. I was around different people in that rest home. And uh, one, uh, you know, that, that passed. And in my mind, I'd always had a funny title called Bubba Hotep that I thought I'd write a story around someday. And then I was asked to write a story for Elvis is dead. I think it was called, or the King is dead. And I forget exactly. And all of that just blended together suddenly. I wrote it very quick. It was, I, I don't remember exactly how long, week or two at the most, because it was a long story. And for me, that was actually longer than usual, but it was still quick. And when I turned it in, I thought, what have I done? That story is crazy. I was going to write and withdraw it. And I got it. And I waited a few days and I got a letter back. They loved it. Favorite story in the book. So, uh, then I, then suddenly I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Don Coscarelli one time called me and said, can I come visit with you a few days? And I said, okay. Uh, you know, I didn't know him from Adam. I knew who he was. I knew what he had done. I was a fan of Phantasm. And he came to the house and stayed for us a couple of days. And uh, uh, he was looking for, try to, to option some of my work. And I think some of it was already under option. So I wasn't able to do that. But he went away thinking he wanted to do something of mine. And then later he came across... Uh, um, uh, an anthology of mine that had Bubba Hotep in it or a collection of mine had Bubba Hotep in it and incident on and off a mountain road. And he liked them both. And I, when he was going to option Bubba, I said, Don, you're a friend. Don't do it. it. You can't make this into a film. It won't work. And I remember telling my brother of all the things I've written, I know one thing that'll never be filmed Bubba Hotep. And uh, then he said, do you want to write a script? Well, uh, Don doesn't pay a lot. So I didn't want to write a script because I didn't think it could be dumb was a real reason. And then he sent me a script and I said, well, that son of a bitch, he did it. Uh, you know? And uh, I had, I think I had a few suggestions, which he ignored until Bruce Campbell had the same ones. Then it was a good suggestion. And uh, then they, they uh, uh, made the film 
and I, my son and I went out there on the set for, for a few days and I became friends with Bruce, you know, still, we're still friends. And, and Don, of course, and I uh, just became real close. And uh, I got to meet Ozzie Davis, one of my heroes. So it was a wonderful experience, but it was just a, an unexpected, unlikely experience. And when I first saw it, I saw it in Austin because Don came to Austin and we saw it with uh, the guy that did, uh, oh, what's a, some kind of news thing, something about comics and film and whatever. But he was there. I brought a friend with me and we watched it. And I was just, I was, I was thinking, oh, this is going to suck. And it didn't suck. I said, damn, damn, this is good. Because he did almost the story verbatim. And what changes he has mainly had to do with finances. And then he added a few things that aren't in the story, but they work beautifully. And, um, and he couldn't afford it. My story was kind of like these weird shadows that fluttered around the mummy, but he turned that into that bug, you know, the, the big, big courage. This but anyway, this. <laughs> yeah. And so I kind of took the place of that, which I thought was brilliant, you know, cause, and, um, I remember being scared. They wouldn't do the thing where the mummy would talk and it would come out in hieroglyphics, but they did. And uh, that made me very happy because that's in the book. And those hieroglyphics were made by Mark Nelson, who gets a credit at the end of the film. Awesome. He did them for my book. Hey, yeah, he did them for my book. Then he did them in the film. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's Bubba. That's amazing. Uh, not to get too incredibly deep, but I think part of the reason why I love this particular film, by the way, this is one, uh, one of our first episodes of my bloody podcast that Brian and I do was Boba Hotep. I want to say it was like episode three. Yeah, it was, was like, like, yeah. And we, we've done over 120 or 130 episodes. So we, we yeah. yeah, I would be embarrassed to go back and listen to it. So don't look it up. Anyway, um, <laughs> Uh, what makes it so great is that while, yeah, as you were describing it, it's it's like a very ridiculous concept. But what makes it so great is just like there's there's a lot of great comedy in it. And then there's a lot of realism to it. And I kind of want to tap yeah. into that realism a little bit. Well, that, that goes back to my literary influence days. You know, I thought I was writing a story that would be fun on the surface, but was really about mortality yeah. and uh, about growing old and how when growing old, you're often disrespected yeah and uh of course here i am old now and i was writing that and i guess i was what 40 maybe i don't know 40s early 40s and uh but uh being around at rest home and of course my mother was older and and my father was was gone by then and uh i i felt a lot about that while i was writing it was going on while i was writing it so i i know it that infused into it and i i often write stories that are just fun but more often than not stories i write have to do with something or another it you know if you look at it and you read it carefully you go oh i see what he's getting at and some of the best ways to do that are fantasy science fiction horror uh, and even crime fiction you know different ways of, of approaching it um so that was the essence of the story to me that was its heartbeat was that you know facing mortality and what life is about and how do you deal with it what's it worth what how, what, how do you make it worth something yeah, that the line "everything you do is worthless" and sadly amusing is the one that I cling to the most. Of course, I'm not yeah. get not quite there yet, but I, I am curious just because you brought it up. How has your relationship changed to the themes over the past 30, 40 years? I feel exactly the same. When 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 I was in my mid twenties, I, I I really kind of had the whole mortality thing and understood it. Uh, you know, I and it hadn't changed and. and uh, and I think being an atheist has a lot to do with it. You know, it is what it is. It's not like you're going to avoid it. You know, it's not it's not like I'm waiting for the promised land. It's not like I think somebody put us here for a test. And if they did, they're a jackass, you know. And so I didn't uh, I, I I didn't I didn't change. I felt that way. I still feel that way. I, I, I'm happy. I live a good life. But I'm very much aware that things change and you get older. Things change. Fortunately for me, I'm still working. I'm still capable, uh, you know, so I'm still teaching martial arts for heaven's sakes. I hurt more, but I'm still teaching. But, uh, you know, I, I just think that you you have to look at it straight on. And once you look at it straight on, you're a lot more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. I had to ask just because you were talking about Old Man of the Sea earlier. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. 
No, I love it. If if so, since the whole worldwide phenomenon of Bubba Hotep, and there's been talks for a long time about Bubba Nosferatu. If you can add that Bubba character into any movie to make it that much more better, do you know what movie? Any movie that you would add that Bubba Hotep universe into? Bubba Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> <laughs> sold <laughs> where do i send the check which cast in casablanca i love it i love it I, I have a couple of fun questions for you i first off is it true that in some time when you were growing up that part of a space shuttle landed in your backyard or front yard well, when i was growing up i was a grown man it was the space shuttle was was in the 2000s you know it exploded over our East Texas and over our house to some degree, because debris landed in the yard. And uh, we, you know, we called in and they said, well, just, you know, preserve it. Don't move it. And we went to town and there was debris in town. I remember in the bank parking lot, there was the door to the space shuttle, you know, and they found body parts and stuff like that uh, all out in the woods. And cause you know, East Texas is deep woods. It's nothing like people think of as Texas. It's more like Louisiana. It's got swamp, you know, rivers creeks lots of woods lots of critters and uh so that that happened i'm, I'm i can't remember the exact year that happened but that that's not ancient history by any means and i okay. was a grown man yeah, and and the kid you know what happened is that when it exploded we were asleep we were in bed and, and i don't it wasn't i don't think it was real early or anything but you know we were we were still in bed and, my, and, and it felt suddenly like the an earthquake the house started rumbling and I, I heard what i sounded like a giant semi at the end of our long drive just sitting there idling and then I, there was that and the house literally shook and i got up and went outside i didn't see anything you know and uh, at that first glance and then um uh karen's uh, brother called and said did you find any pieces of the space shuttle i thought what and so it had blown up and uh, we did find them in the yard and they eventually came and collected them. And, uh, but there were pieces around town. And like I said, a whole door line up in the bank parking lot. Oh my and, goodness. And I heard somebody had a piece uh, went right through their truck, but nobody was hurt. Nobody was in it. And so I don't, I don't know how people managed not to get hit or hurt, but they didn't except of course the poor astronauts, but right. uh, that, yeah, that's true. But that's crazy. Um, and I have to know that my shuttles when I was a kid. That's how young you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm in my Sputnik. Well, yeah, Sputnik. right. <laughs> and, later, and later, and that was Russian. And then later they landed on the uh the moon, you know. But no, that was uh much later. Okay, okay. Um, and I and I have to ask, so in all of your years of writing and maybe collecting books, do you have like, what is your most curious, your most odd publication that you own? And do you hold it in high prize? Like the, the most curious or. Oh, I don't, I can't think of anything like that at all. I, I have a vast book collection, which I'm getting rid of a lot now because I've got, I've run out of house. I've got like a 4,000 square foot house and I only use the upstairs, which is half the house. And I got bookshelves everywhere and there's stuff full of books and uh, they're starting to outrun me. And uh, as fast as I get rid of them, though, I'll buy a few more. You know, I try to say, well, if I get rid of 500, I can buy 10. <laughs> but I don't I don't really know. I don't know if I have. I'm sure I do have some really unique items, but I, I don't think about that at all. Some of my stuff has appeared in odd places, too. But uh, even that I would. I, I, you know, I really have to dig and think about. So I don't think I have an answer to that question. All right. Well, at a later time, for sure. Maybe. Well, yeah. When, when you're cleaning it out, let us know. That's it. I, don't, I don't know. If I'm going, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I have I a lot of comics. Stuff. You know, I, I have all kinds of things. That's cool. Uh, and so it's obvious that you're a literary and a cinematic aficionado are there any particular scenes in movies or passages and books that have always stuck with you that help shape you creatively yeah the the opening to raymond chandler's the big sleep i don't remember the exact quote but it was something about uh, it was 10 o'clock in the morning with a high hard look of rain in the foothills and i was 
dressed in my powder blue suit and my striped tie. And I was clean, I was clean and sober and didn't care who knew it or something along that line. I'm sure, I'm sure I left out words, but I just remembered that telling me immediately. I knew that character one paragraph. I thought, Oh, what can I learn from that? And Ray Bradbury talking about out there in the deep, you know, in the, um, the foghorn and uh, so many things of his, so many things by so many writers, you know, Twain, oh my God, everything by Twain, you know, he was just brilliant. Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird are my two favorite novels, you know, and my sentimental favorite is The Princess of Mars by Burroughs, you know, and, and some of those things are certainly dated, you know, they're, they're not going to pass uh, the muster of, of uh, modern times exactly, but I don't think you read them for that. You read them for what they do. Like some people, well, Lovecraft was racist. You know, we got to get rid of him. Well, I don't read him for his racism. I read him for his uh, creativity and what he did, what he accomplished. If he were alive now, I probably wouldn't read him because I wouldn't want him to get my money. But right now he's not getting my money and he's getting it for a different reason. He's getting it for the fact that he created, you know, a lot of the horror field that reject rejecting, which is kind of a, a more recent thing, wouldn't have a horror field if it weren't for him or Edgar Allan Poe, who was a, was a, uh, you know, a drinker and a doper. And, you know, I, it, if you get into the, if a person's alive and I can keep them from getting an income and I don't like them, I'm, I can make that choice personally. I'm not saying they should be, you know, canceled or restricted or censored. You know, they get to say whatever they want, even if I think it's idiotic. Um, I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I'm not I'm not a fan of this sort of let's go back and revise everything. It's oh, because you lose the history, you lose the context, you and you actually lose how much we have accomplished. Because when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, racism was was so raw. Jim Crow was so raw. It's nothing like now. So it's much, much better. Can we do better? Of course. But you also need that context of the past. Not that we learn much from it, but we should try. Right, right. And since well, you're part Brian of this, and I know what, sorry, Brian, uh, Brian, and I know what uh, we're going to get you for Christmas. We're going to get you black wool socks with dark blue clocks on them. <laughs> that's right. That's, <laughs> that's what he had on. That's what he had on. Yeah. Yeah. He would like, there's scenes where he'd have his feet propped. But I always thought Chandler was so funny. And yet at the same time, he was writing crime novels, but he was also writing real novels. He was writing novels. He was doing what I wanted to do was write a genre in one way, but write literary stuff in another way, you know, and mm -hmm. it, you don't really have to define it, but that's what he was doing. And that, that influenced me heavily. Ray Bradbury was doing the same, especially that real early stuff. He was writing horror and science fiction or science fantasy, but he was also writing literary allegories. And uh, I love that Flannery O'Connor you know, she was she was actually a Catholic writer, but her work came across not that way to me at all. I thought that she could see hypocrisy better than almost anybody. And she did it straight on. She wouldn't try. Who could I'm, I might offend somebody. She didn't care if she offended you. And I think writing should be brave and offensive if it needs to be. It's not always about what you think. It's about what the characters think. And and I've had racist characters in my books, but I'm not a racist. I'm using them to make a point or to capture an element in time that exists. And I, I just get tired of everything being sugarcoated now, or uh, I don't do trigger warnings. And the only one I do is I wrote it. That's my trigger warning. And uh, the, the other thing is, is I don't do that because I don't know what might offend you. Well, you know, if I make a list of 10, but it's, it's the other two things that offend you. Well, I, I did a poor job at a trigger warning. I have no idea what will offend you. And life's just full of little disappointments. And I think people have to get used to that to live a good life. And outside of, of Twitter, most people don't give a damn anyway. You know, they're not, they're not going to, I'm going to say something. I might say something that'll trigger you. Well, that just doesn't, that rarely happens unless it's amongst a group that are always constantly afraid they're going to hurt somebody's feelings or offend somebody. Nobody should want to hurt somebody's feelings or offend them, but you do. Cause that's life. And literature is not about that. It's not, it's, it, it's not about pretty manners. It's not at all. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Well said. Well said. Um, to, to end this convo, I could feel like we could talk with you for two hours and hopefully we'll have you back on the show very soon, but I'm curious, you're part of this Mount Rushmore of creativity uh, with some of the best names out there. Let's say, so do you, Joe, have like a text chain or an email chain with Don or Stephen King or uh, anybody that you've worked with where you talk about movies and books or UFC fighting well, I'm, boxing. I'm friends with, 
I don't know St Stephen King well. We know who each other is, and we I know his sons better actually. I, I know Owen and Joe, and uh, uh, and I know King because I met him, and we know each other kind of in passing that sort of way. But uh, yeah, a lot of the people I do keep in, I, you know, every once in a while I, I drop a. Uh, uh, Bruce Campbell line or James Purefoy who played Hap in the TV series. And, and I consider all those people friends, you know, there's, there's levels of friendship, you know, there, there's casual friendship and then there's deep friendship and, and it, it varies from people. I know Don and I, Don just sent me a new poster for Bubba Hotep a little while back and, and, and actually sent me a really cool bathrobe because he thought was, man, this is cool. You need one of these, he and his wife. And, uh, so, yeah, I keep up with a lot of people like that, you know, not as as well as I should sometimes because I'm I'm so busy, you know, and uh, our kids have grown up both to be writers. My son's had some movies done from his scripts and scripts and uh, Casey's done good grief. She's, you know, she's a professional singer, songwriter. She has a book company called Pandy Press, her and her, and her uh, fiance, Jonathan Levitt, who is a major magician. He's one of the great sleight of hand magicians and uh, he works out at the magic castle a lot, but all over, he would, they just did uh, they were two and a half months in Italy and she was doing book signings and he was doing magic and they were doing tourism too and got engaged. So it was, <laughs> they were busy. Congrats. So, you know, it's a good life. You know, we, we, we hang out mostly, you know, and, and I travel when I have to, I write every day. I've already written today and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, it's what I wanted. I, I think I'm one of the, you know, I've had tragedy in my life and I've had disappointments in my life, like most anybody who lives a, a full life, but I got what I wanted. I knew what I wanted early on and I got it and I'm not complaining. I don't have to be the richest writer, though. I'm actually, I'm well enough off that I can't believe it. Starting from being so poor, I can pretty much do what I want afford what I want. And then yet again, you know, I'm, I'm not so, uh, much that way that I want to uh, quit working. Even if I wanted to quit working, I, I still like having that security because Dean Koontz was said to me one time, he said, once poor, always poor. He's right. Well, that grass for free. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Thank you so much, Joe. You're going to be at the Texas theater September 9th for a right. screen of Bubba Hotep. And I'm also signing things get ugly, a collection of crime stories. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, we can't wait to see you at the Texas theater here in Dallas, Texas, a historic theater, an amazing theater. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope to have you on very soon again. Okay. I'm here. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right. Uh, Brian and Preston here after the horror, after the blood has spilled with Joe R. Lansdale, the writer of Bubba Hotep. We just talked with him for just under an hour and I feel Preston that we could have talked with him. Wait for like three and a half, four hours and still not gotten to the bottom of it. I know I, as he was talking, I was like pulling out, my word document to the side and like, Oh, that was a good little thing. I got to have to ask for that. Oh man, we're running out of time. So I feel like after this, I'm going to pull up my notes, listen to this back and then request that we get them back on the show. Just so I feel, I feel like we're going to have like a multi-part uh, conversation. No, I have so many notes in this notebook that we only got to like two of them. <laughs> yeah, no. Right. <laughs> that was like so i'm very you know you and i do this weekly daily interview people we always don't get you know a full hour or anything with it but a lot of times when we get an hour you can tell this guy is a storyteller just like you said in the interview and a lot of these questions that we would ask other people we would get you know a minute and a half answer maybe two minutes Joe goes on for like 10 minutes with an answer and he tells it so well. He's like, he's so like another great storyteller in life is Kevin Smith. If you've seen an evening with Kevin Smith and you ask him questions, he has these amazing cinematic approaches to telling stories. And I didn't know Joe Lansdale did that, but oh my goodness, he's so good at it. Yeah. And he had like the best explanation for that. Cause at the very top when he had was going through his growing up, he was like, I know that was a very long answer to your question, but don't ask the question. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. 
that was if you don't want to know the answer and I, yeah that was so great he had so many of these quips and uh witty sayings that i was like oh man this guy is awesome i'm so glad he lives in east texas and is it is it like me so like when i brought up the question about bubba hotep because the about how it came into his brain. Do you feel the yeah. same way? Because like in our profession, a lot of people ask us, oh, what is that about? What is this movie? The yeah. one movie that I'm so excited to talk about is Bubba Hotep because it is such a fun movie to describe. Is that yeah. for you? Oh, oh, absolutely. My wife, even when we recorded our episode about this five years ago or so, she didn't watch it with me. I watched it by myself and and I revisited it this morning and my wife was like, what are you watching? And I explained the concept to her and she was like, that's a lot of movie. Like what's going on there? But it piques your interest because you're like Elvis, possibly an impersonator, JFK. But like a, a, a black dude who thinks he's JFK and has his brain implanted. His brain. Yeah. The and then you have an aging Elvis who actually thinks he's Elvis. They're in a nursing home. Yeah. And then an Egyptian mummy becomes alive and starts killing the residents of the retirement home by sucking the souls out of their buttholes. <laughs> and it's up to this JFK and Elvis to stop them. And that's the that's the gist. Yeah. And that's what makes it so great is because they care. But what makes it such a, and what I was getting at when I was asking him about, like, you know, there's, there's a, it's a ridiculous concept, but just in the same way of something like Talladega Nights or Step Brothers being a ridiculous movie, as you watch it, you're like, there's so much great commentary in here and funny lines. But in, in this one's the same way because you're watching it and you get you, you'll get held up on like some of the first quotes that are <clears throat> in the story from Bruce Campbell's Elvis. And he's like talking about, you know, how there's this pussy thing on his on his manhood down there. His and, pecker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, they'll get to that a quote like that that I was talking about with uh, how everything uh, from how younger people, how younger generations view older, older people as when, you know, when they're telling stories and things like that, they're like, you know, I just kind of want to get out of here. I don't have the patience for this, but if you had the patience for it to sit there and listen to the stories, you would have like a really transcendental, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, just like an incredible experience of doing that. And so I think what makes it so heartwarming is that, you know, in the very beginning when Elvis is in his uh, roommate is passing away and the roommate's daughter's coming in to go through the stuff and is throwing out pictures and things that meant so much to her father, but she's completely disregarding it. And then he's like, you know what? I didn't really, wasn't like best friends with the guy, but I knew how much those things meant to him. And so I, I cared and it kind of hurt his heart a little bit that she was doing that. Uh, so she want he wanted to keep, you know, the purple hearts and some of the pictures and things that meant a lot to him. And so I think that just that particular line that I like just encapsulates that whole thing that whole feeling. And so that's what makes it special. By the end, they, the um, Jack and Elvis are the only two people who care. And that just kind of makes it, as he was saying, like, I'm not a poetic guy, um, or at least he wasn't interested in poetry, but it's obvious that poetry kind of made its way into his work. No, yeah, I loved it. This was such a because I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't really seen like an interview with him. I read some interviews like in print and, you know, some of the answers were really short. And I was like, oh, my God, we're going to have 45 minutes. We're going to get through a lot of questions. And that first question, you know, where did it all start? And he went on for I was just so excited because his he has energy, a lot yeah. of energy, which yeah. is great. And you know what? I almost feel bad if he does Q&A's because. Q&A's last like 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm very interested to see how this uh, Q&A at Texas Theater, I mean, 
Hey, Texas Theater is notorious for having really long Q and A's. We were talking about Kevin Smith. We've been to the Kevin Smith show, and that was. But granted, that that whole experience was meant to be a discussion. But I was at the Texas Theater seeing Blade Runner twenty forty nine, where Roger Deakins and his wife were there, and that Q and A went on for two hours. Hell so yeah! They they'll stretch it. They don't have. They probably don't have any other uh, shows after that so they don't need to wrap up things too quickly and for him for how well spoken he is i think they'll let him run i hope so because you know a lot of people that we talk to are so great but sometimes uh their energy doesn't match ours and i'm glad he he seems like real excited to talk about his stuff yeah yeah well and when we do when a lot of the times when we're talking with other talents or filmmakers, it may be part of a press junket. And it's just kind of understood that, hey, you have this limit, this window of time. We've also been talking to a lot of other publications. And for him, it just seems like, hey, he woke up, he did his exercises, he did some writing, he talked to us, and now he can go about his day. Uh, but maybe he has other uh, discussions that he's going to be doing leading up to the Texas theater uh, appearance. But it, it it's it's just special when you have an experience like this where unlike Elvis, I don't know why my brain's going this way, um, but this is just what I'm thinking. Because when I watched that Elvis movie that came out last year, he was like held back by so many circumstances. Like there's the like just imagine like what could possibly happen if he was unshackled and he can just do whatever he wanted creatively and say whatever he wanted to say. And we kind of had a special moment like that where we had an hour of time and we got to really have this meaty discussion with him about his grown up. And we got a full sense of what kind of person he is, how he feels about the world and what kind of art he takes in yeah. and what that's like through the evolution of time. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was good. That was great, man. I loved it. Uh, oh, oh, goodness. And I'm so glad he keeps in touch with Bruce Campbell. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that Don sends him a bathrobe because <laughs> you got to think like I love asking that question because you got to think like somebody like Don, him and Don and maybe Bruce are on a text chain and they're like, hey, did you check out this episode? Did you check out this fight? You know, yeah, and you're yeah, just like, what? Uh, that's great. And I wonder what their text chain is called. <laughs> yeah. Like, Or what? Yeah. What art they are connecting over? Like what is <clears throat> kind of like how we are in our own text chain with our, our, our friend Dan Moran of Fear and Loathing in a cinema we'll have we'll bring up something ridiculous and it'd be like well that's just for that person i don't know about that um so <laughs> what, what is that like getting a text bruce campbell saying hey have y'all checked this out and we're like i i don't have any room in my life for that so. <laughs> oh god oh that was so much fun i i really enjoyed that i hope we can get him on again just yeah. to talk about things and bubba Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. The ending would have been very different. They would have been coming out there and be like, they're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> you took care of them. That would have been great. That would have been so good. That, that ending picture would be so different. It Bubba would. With his arms around Butch and Cassidy. Oh, it would. It would. Or yeah, Butch, he's witnessed so much. And... It's great that his kids and Don's kids, they're they're just all in the business doing their own thing, singing, writing, directing. Um, no, it's cool. And I, I again, I have a whole little notebook here, a few pages of stuff we didn't get to. So yeah. I hope that we can. Are you are we going to this? I mean, it's it's a while away. It's in September. But are we going to this? I'd like to just to, I, I'm. I mean, after us talking to him. I'd be interested to see what what else he has to say, because even through just how his mind was operating, like it had anecdotes within anecdotes. Right. And it just feels like his telling of the inspiration for Bubba Hotep would be different every time, because based off of the energy in the room, people's responses to what he has to say, you know, there's no telling what will come up. And so I think even if you have having heard this conversation, I think, and you can kind of expect that 
it's going to be a special experience because at the Texas theater, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was there and then there's the connection to JFK with this. Movie. Yeah. Who knows what's going to be said. So I yeah. Think- who's, who's moderating this? Is this something like you and I can do? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, usually they have somebody um, associated with the Texas theater asking some of the questions. Um, so the, they'll, they'll do it like typical Q and a styles or they'll get, I don't know. Cause they got somebody like a journalist uh, for the uh, uh, Blade Runner 2049 one. So uh, I don't know. Maybe we should ask uh, who's doing it. All right. Well, we should put our names in the pot. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool. That would be awesome. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, my Bloody Podcast. This is a, a great one. I'm glad we got to talk about Bubba Hotep with the OG writer of it. Um, yeah. That's pretty awesome. Uh, I love it. I, I love this. This is great. And this is after after the blood, after the whore. Yeah. After blood. <laughs> this is good. Uh, I'm Brian Kluger. That's Preston Barta. Check Preston out at freshfiction.tv. Check him out at the Denton Record Chronicle. Uh, check him out on YouTube. Check him out on Instagram, Twitter, Spaces, TikTok. Are you on Blue Sky yet? No, I'm not. I'm on threads, kind of. Thread. Oh, yeah. Spa- threads or spaces. I can't remember what it's called. Um, so, yes. Yeah. Check him out there. Blu ray dad at Instagram, everything else. Preston Barta. Check him out there. Read his reviews. 